0: You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen, Trey. Amen. All right. Uh, so while the kids are moving out, if you're staying in the room, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. All right. So we're introduced to a chapter here that's quoted several times in the New Testament, and a lot of our New Testament theology is built on statements that are made here in our understanding of Abraham, his journey. Of course, now at this point in chapter 15, we're still calling him Abram, and that was his given name. The Lord had not yet changed his name, and we're coming right into the middle of his story. So if you're jumping in with us, uh, just to keep you kind of, or get you up to date, Abram was a pagan, a moon worshiper. He, He was not someone who was taught to worship God from his youth but as an adult man living in a Middle Eastern city, which is now modern-day Iraq, the Lord spoke to him, called him out of that city, and told him to follow him, and that he was going to make a great nation out of him in a land that he was going to show him, and so Abram then, by God's grace, begins to follow God, trust him, and believe in these promises. He has struggles along the way. He doubts God's word at times, uh, and tries to kind of find his own way to seeing these promises accomplished. But God is gracious, God delivers him, and continues to bring him back around to belief. And, and we believe, according to what the New Testament says, that it was a genuine belief that Abram had. And we're gonna continue to see that genuine belief unfold here in chapter 15. This is the beginning of, uh, a- Abram's story is the beginning of the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, and, and in an even more profound way, in an eternal way, is the beginning of the kingdom of God in the world, the kingdom that we are all members of. So we're going to, Lord willing, make it all the way through chapter 15 this morning. So just as we normally do, I'll read this uh, out loud. And if you would follow along, uh, and then we'll ask the Lord for some help just for this time. Genesis chapter 15. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, "'O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it?' He said to him, "'Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon.' And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away." You should be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenezites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray for help. Lord, we confess this morning our need for you, our dependence on you. This task is too great for us, Lord. this goal that we bring of gathering together to worship you in spirit and truth, to learn from your word, to teach it, to know it, to hear it believe it, to obey it, to embrace it. Lord, this is too great for us. We need you. Please, Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts. Open our minds, the eyes and ears of our hearts to not only hear the word this morning, but to believe it, to receive it, to trust you. Please work powerfully in each of our hearts to conform us to your will, to your word. Our highest goal, Lord, that we proclaim to you this morning is to magnify, exalt, and worship you and we believe that the greatest act of worship that could come from us is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, willfully and joyfully. So please accomplish this thing, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, as we see in these first six verses, uh, kind of set apart as, on their own, and then we see verses seven through 21, uh, kind of the the scene shifts, and we have another thing unfolding. and this first six verses, we have this conversation between uh, Abram and the Lord. And as Abram is speaking, of course, what you hear in his voice is a degree of doubt, right? You, you can hear in him, I mean he he says it out loud to the Lord uh, these questions. The Lord is coming to him in a vision where before the Lord had only come as a voice to Abram. Now, uh, we're not given a description of exactly what it is Abram is seeing, but we know he's seeing something, and he's hearing from the Lord, and this is going to be a continuing thing that happens in Abram's life. What a grace. In some way, the Lord appears, or has something appear to him, and the voice of the Lord says to him, "Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great." Now, leading up to this, through chapter fourteen, you wouldn't get the idea that Abram was really struggling with doubt here. Abram has uh, has gone off and defeated several kings in order to rescue Lot, his nephew. And, and he's been very generous, very open-handed, very faithful in the way he dealt, even with his enemies and with these other kings and his allies. He, he didn't want any of their possessions. He just wanted what God was giving to him. He wanted to be with his people in the place where God had called him. So he's very generous in giving things away, and he's counted as a righteous person here. He's counted as a faithful person He's done something for his nephew Lot that you may not see coming, where Lot was very selfish, and, and Abram gave him the choice of what part of the land they were going to divide. He said, Lot, take whatever you want. The whole land is before you. Wherever you go, I'll go the other way. And Of course, Lot chooses the greenest, most lush part of the valley uh, of uh, the land, and Abram takes the rest. But here, Abram is rescuing Lot, so at this point, he just seems like he's really in step, doesn't he? There doesn't seem to be anything in him that would tell you he's struggling with his faith, that he's not trusting God, that he's forgotten any promises, that he's wayward or sinful in any way. It doesn't really come into your minds, and then here, the Lord is telling him, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now. Here, you know, I don't wanna read into the text, but what this moment feels like to me is when everything appears fine on the purpose, on, on the surface, but the Lord knows what's going on in the human heart and he speaks through that. He cuts through the appearances and speaks to the heart. So we know what's happening in Abram's heart because the Lord speaks to him and then the response that comes from Abram when he hears that is this, oh Lord God, what will you give me? He says your reward will be very great Abram says, "'What will you give me? "'What is my reward? "'For I continue childless. "'And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus.'" So that would have been a member of his household, but not one of his offspring, his descendants. He was going to have to give everything that he had to an heir that was not actually his offspring. remember that the Lord had promised to him a son. He promised to him offspring. In fact, he promised him so many descendants that it would be innumerable. It'd be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the ocean. But here he doesn't even have a son. What will you give me? This is the one thing that he really wants, and yet the Lord's making him wait for it. And then Abram goes on to say, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord come to him. This man shall not be your heir. In direct contradiction to Abram's doubts, this man shall not be your heir. There's no gray area. There's no wish-wash. He just completely contradicts Abram's perspective. Remember that Abram here is about 100 years old. His wife is about 90 years old. They've been waiting now for, for a long time for this promise of an heir to be fulfilled, you can imagine their struggle, and waiting on the Lord, and and having belief in their hearts, but without seeing it come to fruition, it became difficult, and he questioned. Then the Lord does something really gracious for him. He doesn't just contradict his perspective. He doesn't just restate the promise, restate the truth without any kind of ambiguity, but verse 5, he brought him outside. And he said, look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, just to be very clear, uh, there's a lot of pronoun happening in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What's happening here is Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. So as I said this chapter is quoted in the New Testament and and much of our gospel understanding of sin of righteousness of justification is built on this passage and specifically verse 6 that the Lord counted it to righteousness that Abram believed the Lord so this verse is quoted four times in the New Testament Romans chapter four, it's quoted twice in verses three and 22, then in Galatians chapter three, verse six, and then in James chapter two, verse 23. So we're going to hone in here on the Romans passage, chapter four. So I'm going to ask you to just kind of mark that Genesis 15, we're going to come back there, but if you would turn to Romans chapter four, you're going to turn to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans <laughs> Romans chapter 4. So, any time that we have the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament for us, why would we try to do it on our own, right? We always want to make sure that the way we interpret Scripture is by allowing the Scripture to interpret itself, and especially where the Scripture is explicitly interpreting The New Testament interpreting the Old Testament, we have to go straight to these things, not try to do guesswork, not try to figure it out, but just let the Bible tell us what it's saying. So here we have Paul, The apostle speaking to the church in Rome and carried and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's writing a letter to them to describe to them what was happening back there in Genesis chapter 15 and how does that relate to them and their faith in the Lord and how it is that they could be justified before a holy God. So we're going to pick this up, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. He says, the promise to Abraham, so that Abram that we're reading about is Abraham, his name later was changed. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." So, here in verses 13 through 15, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, that is, heir of a kingdom that expands throughout the entire world, and even in a greater sense we look into the future with minds enlightened by the Lord's Spirit and and having His truth in our laps this morning, we know that the world really ultimately will end up being a newly created place where the people of God exist and truly worship in spirit and truth perpetually for eternity with God there with them. That Abram, Abraham, and his offspring would be heirs of this world, that it would not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, up here in verse 3 of chapter 4, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, we know is a direct quote, and we'll get it again later. But here we are, the law and grace set up before us, each doing a work. And we see Abraham here navigating life in the world through faith, not through the law. The law wasn't even given at this time that the Lord is speaking to Abram. He's walking by faith, and he's made righteous by his faith. But how does this relate when the story keeps moving and the Lord gives his people a law and they're called to live by that law and if they don't, they'll suffer and if they do, they'll be rewarded and then they continually fail and fail and fail and eventually grace comes onto the scene in a much more uh, global and a much more explicit way the Lord begins to describe the relationship between law and grace. And here we have this explanation. And we see how it's even playing out in Genesis chapter 15. We know that the law was given by God to the people to obey because the law exhibits the character of God. And God's people are called to live in light of His character, to be like Him, to walk in the way that He walks, to value the things He values, to uphold His moral principles. But Abraham doesn't even have that written law yet, but there's still a responsibility of human beings to live in keeping with God's nature, God's character. We're made in his image, made for his glory. So Abraham is called to honor God in the way he lives, but is it possible? Is it possible that Abraham could live in such a way that he would be... Pleasing to God, and God would count his works, Abraham's works, as righteousness, and that by his own works and his righteousness, he would have a relationship with God and be found righteous in God's sight. Is that possible? Well, to the person reading this letter in the first century, the Jewish person was of the belief that, well, I hope it's possible. I hope it's possible to live in such a righteous way that God says, well done, you've lived righteously, I accept you. But if we're all honest, we know in our hearts that it is impossible to please God in our own strength. That it's impossible to live in such a righteous way that God would call us righteous based on our own works. The law was given not as a means of salvation, but it was meant to expose our need for grace, a grace that would overcome our lawlessness. This is why the law was given. So then one of the distinguishing marks of a person who is actually walking in God's strength, a person who has received God's Spirit, this this distinguishing mark is that the law is actually doing the work that it was sent to do. It's exposing in you and you're becoming aware of your own lawlessness and your need for grace. You're becoming aware of this. And people who become aware of this become men and women who understand their natural position of humility before God, their dependence on God, their need for salvation. So if you have a person who is saved, what we would call a Christian person, a person who is trusted in the Lord Jesus and humbled themselves before God, they've realized their need, and they have called out to God in faith that he would save them from the penalty of their sins and reconcile them to himself, not by anything that they've done, but by everything that God has done. When you say to them, don't we need God? They say, yes, of course we do. But if you go up to a person on the street who's not received the Spirit of God, who's been awoken to their need for grace, and you say, don't we need God? What would they say? Well, of course, what would they say? They would say, for what? Maybe they would say, yeah, man, I'm really struggling financially. I really, man, I need God's help. Or yeah, man, my kids are going nuts. Really need God's help. Yeah, we got one here. Amen, brother. Appreciate that. So they may, they may see something in their life that they recognize isn't living up to the standard that they would hold it to, something that they feel some void or some emptiness or some pain, and they would say, if God's out there, this is what I need him for. But would they just say, in order to be counted as righteous before God, as good, just that I would even be able to speak to God and be accepted? that I would be able to walk in this world without being under the wrath of God, hanging over me in judgment, rightfully so, as a sinner before a holy God. Do we need God? It wouldn't even occur to them. It wouldn't even occur to them. But when the law, when, when the law does what it's meant to do, when we see God's perfect righteous standard before us, And we realize our inability to live up to it. It does its work. We're humbled before God. We see our need. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to know that you cannot in your own strength please God. And it's only in this kind of humility, spirit-granted honesty, that we can be Abraham's offspring because this was what happened to Abraham. He realized that it was impossible for him to please God, and so he trusted God for everything, anything good, anything that I'll be the heir of, any any kind of offspring that come from me, any kind of fulfillment or joy that I have, any purpose that I walk in, will all, all of it be the result of an act of grace from a holy and a distant God who's greater than me and far above me, and here I am, a worm in the earth, just benefiting from his grace. He knew his need, so he looked towards the Lord with faith. And it was this faith that was counted to him as righteousness. So then, here, Paul boldly describing in verse 14 that if righteousness can be earned, faith is useless. It's null, it's void, it's pointless. What a bold statement! Why is he making this statement? Because the tendency of every human heart is to work to please God. To work to please him. That that when we pray, we're accepted because of what we've done, because of how we've lived in our recent history. Don't you feel the temptation when you sin to hide from God to wait until a better time to present your request to him. Let me at least have 10 minutes of walking in righteousness before I come to God to present something. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to come to God and he's going, you, you're going to come to me and ask for this. Look at the last week of your life. You're coming to me asking me for stuff. So the temptation in our heart is to try to to try to gird ourselves up, to really focus hard and live for a few minutes in righteousness and then go, Lord, here I am. I know you're so proud of me. I know you think I'm your cutest kid. And so here I am to present my request to you and that God is saying, you know what? I believe in your sincerity because look at how you've lived. And here's Paul And verse 14 saying, if righteousness could come through works of the law, faith would be null, faith would be pointless, it'd be worthless. So then what we have to do this morning in recognition of Abraham's faith and our connection to Abraham as people of faith is we have to make a decision. Are we going to be people who trust in our works as our accreditation before God, or are we going to be trusting in Christ's works on our behalf for our accreditation before God? We have to choose one or the other. We can't dabble in them. We just have to stop talking about faith if this is the way we're going to live if we're going to continually try to present our works before God to justify ourselves and feel free and feel accepted and feel loved before him, if this is going to be our continual mode of relationship with God, then shut up about faith. That's what Paul's saying. Just stop talking about faith if this is your effort. So then the honest decision... The honest decision is if I'm going to live and relate to God as someone who is earning my place in his kingdom, I need to stop talking about my faith in him, my trust in him, what I need from him. Because all that is no, if you can earn your place before his throne. But, but, here's the other side of the coin of the decision that we're making this morning in light of this truth. If we realize by the help of the Holy Spirit that our lives, our sins, our attempts at holiness are all screaming of our deep need for a righteousness that is not our own. For the righteousness of Christ to be granted to us through our faith, then we have to abandon all hope in ourselves. Abandon all hope in ourselves. Stop trying to be impressive. Stop stop trying to walk in a way that will impress God. God that will impress others, that will somehow prove you're saved by your conduct and instead continually walk in the confession that it is by His good works, by the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ that we're justified before a holy God, which, which leaves zero room for earning favor. Zero. Is there anything you would say Christ accomplished through his life, death, resurrection for your sake that left some little sliver of work for you to do so that you could be justified before God? Would you ever say that? No. Not if you have the Holy Spirit, not if you have any grasp of the gospel, not if you've walked with the Lord for more than like 30 seconds. You would never say that. If if you have any familiarity with the New Testament scriptures and sound doctrine, you would absolutely never tell someone, you know, I feel like Jesus did so much for me, and I'm trusting him for everything he did. But I know that if I don't do X or Y or Z, that what Jesus did for me will just kind of come up short. And so I have to do this thing in order to be saved, in order to be justified. You would just absolutely never say that. So then why do we tend to live that way so much? The reason why we tend to live that way so much is because of the temptation in our flesh to justify ourselves before God. And particularly in a Western, and even in a Western culture, an American culture, where entitlement is so strong, where this feeling of independence and making your own way so that you don't have anybody to thank in your acceptance speech but yourself. I brought myself here. I don't need you. I don't count on you. And I can't because you will fail me as I accomplish my own will for my life and justify myself. This is the American way. You don't count on others. They'll fail you. If you fail you, then you learn from it. You grow. You get stronger. You move on. You don't make the same mistake twice. You don't count on others. So this is, this is a difficult system to swallow, particularly for us in the world, that you are completely out of control in terms of your own justification. You must look to God completely in faith, not adding your own works to it. So I know when I say that, when I talk about a decision, when we see verse 14 here of Romans chapter four and we know that we're confronted with this concept that the law exposes our disobedience and our need for grace, and it's only through faith in Christ that we can actually be justified. We have to choose a lane, and we have to run in that lane. I I know that all of us who are in Christ, who believe the gospel, who are trusting Christ, I know that all of us, it it causes us all to, to recenter, to refocus, to kind of file through our lives and think, And what way am I living that I'm just trying to justify myself? And why is it that I'm tempted to justify myself? I want to abandon all of that and just trust Christ. I, I know that that's what happens in your heart. So then let's read the rest of this chapter. Starting at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, the promise of inheriting the world, the promise of being God's children. It must rest on grace because it can't rest on the law. We're all doomed if it rests on the law. Not only to the adherent of the law, that is the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that is, the Gentile, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. This was written in the presence of God in whom he believed. Now listen to, it, to who it was in whom Abraham believed. The one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist two very specific things that Paul calls our attention to as we're thinking about trusting completely in the work of God and not in our own work in order to be justified because this is life and death. And anytime you're talking about life and death and what it's contingent upon, you want to be very sure of what it is you're trusting in. Amen? This is life and death. So if I'm trusting 100% in another person's righteousness and not in my own to any degree at all, I'm not adding to it just in case. There's no plan B. There's no backup. It is all on God that I would be justified and live. Two very specific things that Paul calls our, our attention to here. The one who made the promise is he who gives life to the dead who gives life to the dead now we find ourselves in a position where if life is only found in God and we can only be justified and receive that life through him then what does that make us apart from him? Dead apart from trusting in him we are dead but who is it the one who made the promise? The one who gives life to the dead does anyone else have that power? No. No one else has that power, which makes God uniquely qualified to make a promise to us. Uniquely qualified. No one else can say to me, look, trust in me, and I promise you'll be justified and you'll live. No one else can say that because no one else can make me alive when I'm dead. But God is uniquely qualified. Now, here's the other thing that Paul wants to point our attention to. Who is making the promise? The one who calls into existence things that do not exist. Things that are not, he says, are. And they become being because he says so. Things that do not exist begin to exist when God wills that they exist. Does any justifying righteousness exist in me? No. Can I trust in him to be justified? Yes. Because he can make something exist that wouldn't otherwise exist. He's actually pointing us here to creation. Genesis chapter 1, that God calls things out of nothing to be, that in the beginning God was the only thing that was, and then he spoke and other things were. That kind of God who can just cause things to exist, who can make dead things alive, is the only one in the universe who can make this kind of promise to justify us that we don't bring anything to the table, that we don't prove ourselves in order to keep ourselves, but we trust completely in him, in faith, that he will do all of the work to accomplish all of the promise. Now let's go on and look at this description of Abram, verse 18, this characterization of his faith. In hope, he believed against hope. Remember, 100 years old. (laughs) He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, his wife was barren for 90 years. Listen to verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why, because of the genuineness of his faith. Now, okay, I want to very quickly turn you back to Genesis chapter 15. But don't lose your place in Romans because we're going to bounce back there in just a minute. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer the son of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir hang on, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Huh? So then what are the questions arising from? Do you remember when Jesus was in the world and he was teaching and he was giving some some really difficult words And his disciples were expressing to him that they believed, but they were struggling to believe. Do you remember they said, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. That's where we find Abram here. Lord, I'm fully convinced that you're able to do what you're promising to do. I know your power. I've followed you thus far. You've been faithful to deliver me. I completely trust you. How are you going to do this? That's where Abram's at. So please don't find Abram here uh, waffling in and out of faith, in and out of belief, and that somehow a belief that also sometimes doesn't believe is a saving, justifying faith. That's not gospel truth. That's not what the Holy Spirit deposits in the heart of a person who becomes a Christ follower. What comes into your heart is genuine belief. You believe that God is able to do what he's promised to do, that is justify you, that if you trust him, everything Christ accomplished will be credited to you as righteousness. You will not be a sinner under the wrath of God, you'll be a child under the grace of God, and you believe this to the point of death, you believe this, and yet there are times when you go, God, how are you doing it? How will you do it? How will you see this through to the end? I feel like my life is in shambles. I feel like I've waited so long to see these promises come true. How will you do it? But you ask with faith. You ask believing that he's able. Otherwise, why do you even speak to God? Why would you even turn to God and say, why haven't you done it yet except that you believe he's able? These are questions of a believing heart. And these questions were not met with wrath. You know, there were times when people questioned God and it was not a faithful kind of questioning, and God had a much different kind of response. Do you remember when when Job was beginning to question God? And what did God say? Who is this who darkens counsel with words spoken without wisdom? Stand up, and I will question you. Where were you when I made everything? Don't you imagine that about halfway through God saying that, Job was like, Never mind. You know what? I'm fine. I'll just be down here. You're good. You're good. Because that was a different kind of questioning. Job Job had even stayed the course. His wife was like, why don't you just curse God and die already? No, wife, no. I know that God is justified in everything he does. Yet there was a turn in his heart that caused God to say, who is this? But when Abram questions, these are questions arising from belief. I know you're able, God. I know you're true, God. How will you do it? This is how we bring our hurt, our trouble to God. The reason why I make that distinction is because I don't want us to think, again, that a a faith in Christ that justifies you is a faith that is sometimes existing, sometimes not. Within the scope of your faith in Christ, your complete trust in Him for justification, you are allowed to struggle. You're allowed to wonder how. You're allowed to ask God questions. And God, seeing your genuineness, seeing you as his child, will deal with you as a child. There'll be gracious discipline, gracious truth, gracious confrontation. He will not be your heir. But there'll also be the grace of walking with you. Come outside with me. Look to the sky. This is how God deals with his children when they struggle. But remember that it was his faith that justified him. All right, now back to Romans. Back to Romans chapter four. I'm sorry, I totally tricked you guys. Go back to Genesis. I meant to get the second half of the Genesis passage. Now, starting at verse 7. And he said to him, "'I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans "'to give you this land to possess.'" But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, this is a question arising from belief. I know you can do it. I know you're true in your promise. How will you do it? Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. At this point, can you imagine how confused you'd be? But Abram wasn't confused. Look at verse 10. all these cut them in half and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses abram drove them away now i want to describe for you what's happening here because it's not explicit in the text what's happening here is an ancient ritual of covenant making so what what abram is doing what he knew god was calling him to do was cut these animals in half and then create kind of a hallway of death So you've got the heifer cut in half, here's the front, here's the back, and then you've got the goat, the front, the back, you've got all these things lined up so that there's this hall of death, a pool of blood there, and then you pass through it in order to say this, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, let me become like these carcasses, Let me become like them, laying out, wasting, baking, rotting in the sun, bled dry. Let me become like them if I turn out to be false in my commitment to you. God says, bring the animals, cut them, lay them out. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the captivity in Egypt before Moses led them away. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there was this work that the Lord was doing. The Amorites, the inhabitants of the land, were wicked, but they had not yet filled up their wickedness to the point that God was going to judge them. So he was waiting, and at the right time, he would bring the Jewish people back into the promised land. The Amorites would be judged, the land would be cleared, and they would inhabit the land. So as Joshua is going through making war, clearing the land, it's the fulfillment of the completion of the iniquity of the Amorites that now the Lord is ready to give you the land because he's finished judging these wicked people. Now, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The Lord is often described as appearing as a fire, the burning bush, the pillar of cloud before the Israelites going through the desert. And here the Lord is showing Abram that he is passing through this kind of hall of death, showing him the seriousness of his covenant that he's making. You're struggling to believe in the promises that I'm making You're struggling with how I will accomplish these things as you turn into a very old man. And the clock is ticking. This man will not be your heir. I will give you the land. Let me show you how serious I am. And the God of the universe passes through to show his seriousness In effect, saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my word to you, let me, God, become like these dead carcasses that you're shooing away, birds of prey, picking at their bones. Let me become like them. Why would God stoop? Why would he condescend so low to have to make some kind of visual illustration of his seriousness to Abraham? This is all an act of grace. But it deepens, it deepens, it becomes even richer, it becomes even more profound and significant in our understanding of what God has done to condescend to us that not only did he keep his word, not only did he give them the land and they inhabited it and all their enemies were scattered, not only this, but God himself, the son Christ, came into the world and actually became like the dead carcasses, blood spilt, mocked and rotting in the presence of the people, so that we would know for sure God is willing to go even where we deserve to go, so that we would know how serious he is in saving us in just justifying us. God actually died to keep his promise. This is God preaching the gospel. If you can leave a word like that, a demonstration like that from God to a man, illustrating for him the seriousness of his devotion to the gospel if you can leave that without feeling secure in the love of god then i don't know what word you're really listening to <laughs> to god is willing to do this for us to make his promise sure what a gracious god how undeserving we are how undeserving But isn't that the whole point? We're completely undeserving. We're completely dependent on this gracious God to be gracious to us. That any of us at all would experience this kind of grace is a miracle beyond comprehension. And yet here we are. Here we are literally Here we are, in this room together, with the truth of God before us, with the Spirit of God in our hearts, the promises of God fulfilled on our behalf, the righteousness of God imputed, credited to us, not because we were impressive, we were unimpressive, but because God, in His majesty, in His devotion to His children, is so impressive in His grace that we sit here right now justified. Not afraid of wrath, not afraid of rejection, but residing, residing here in Christ. Justified, counted as holy. So, at this point, I think what we have to do is the same thing really that we're, always doing in light of God's truth it's seeing God exalted, lifted up for us to see seeing how different he is than us seeing how completely dependent we are in him recognizing these things accepting, embracing enjoying these things letting them be what God says they are And whatever the result is in your life, however that acceptance, that belief, that enjoyment overflows into your life is fruit. That's fruit from your belief. So, if you've been working to try to be impressive before God, you can stop. James, later on, we said that James quotes this passage in Genesis 15 as well, and he's talking about the relationship between faith and works. Genuine faith will work, but faith, faith stands as what justifies us. But now the work, the thing that's going to come out of your life because of your faith, is the fruit of your belief, the fruit of your acceptance of these truths, your enjoyment of this God who's gone so far beyond what we deserve. So I I say to you, stop trying to impress the Lord. Stop trying to impress the people around you to somehow prove to them that you're saved and start living and thinking and talking and acting like a person who is dependent on grace you realize that changes a lot about the way I live and about the way you live. If we genuinely, thoroughly lived like people who are dependent on grace, there's so much stuff that we do that we wouldn't do anymore. There's so much posturing that we would just stop doing. So much face-saving that we would just quit on. Like Charles Spurgeon says, if any man thinks badly of you, Don't be troubled. You're far worse than he imagined you to be. It's the truth. What do we all feel so threatened by when someone thinks badly of me? Instead of going, you're right, praise God that he wasn't looking to me to be impressive, but he stooped and was gracious to me and counts his righteousness as mine because of my faith. So as I stumble through life trusting God... You're right. I'm not a good friend to you. You shouldn't trust me. I want to be trustworthy. I want to grow in it. I want to become more like Christ. But I have to confess, you're correct about the ways in which I am exactly not like Christ. All the posturing stops. And you know what? The community grows stronger and more tightly knit because we know each other. We don't know the versions of each other that we present in public. We know each other because we've believed these things and it's been counted to us as righteousness. There's so much freedom in that. so much relaxation in that. This is who I am in Christ right now. So I'm just gonna ask you to pray with me, seek God about these things. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.